Our scripture passage this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. If you'd like to follow along, you can turn to page 821 in the Pew Bible, or you can just listen. And please, either way, do listen carefully. This is God's word for you this morning. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is God's word. Our text this morning is a difficult one. It's a confusing one. At best, it leaves us scratching our heads, and at worst, we can be tempted to draw some mistaken conclusions from it. I was at a more liberal church once where the pastor preached on this text, and his main point was that this is the story uh, about the time where Jesus sinned and God forgave him. Now, obviously, that's not a conclusion that we would draw. We know that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, the one man who lived perfectly. So we cannot say, and we would not say, that he sinned here. But I think if we're honest, we have to say that we're not really sure what's going on here. Jesus does not seem very nice in this story. He confuses us. If we're honest, we don't really find him very likable in this story. So what's going on? How do we reconcile how Jesus acts here with how we see him portrayed throughout the rest of the New Testament? How do we understand rightly what he's up to? To do that, we need to put this story in the context of the kingdom of God. And in fact, we need to put it into two contexts about the kingdom of God. First, we need to understand it in terms of how the Pharisees treated the kingdom of God. Now, that might seem weird because the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Israel at this time, do not seem to show up in this passage. But in Matthew's gospel, up to this point, Jesus has been in regular conflict with the Pharisees. And this story, in part, will serve to contrast how Jesus treats the kingdom of God with how the Pharisees treat the kingdom of God. I'll explain more of that in a few minutes. So first, we need to understand this story in terms of how the Pharisees treated the kingdom of God. But second, we need to understand it in terms of what the kingdom of God is actually like. But as we start, let me ask how we view the kingdom of God. And by the kingdom of God, I mean the expression of God's reign on earth, the space where his grace is known by his people, where his favor rests and his love is known in Christ, the kingdom of God. How do we view it? You know, I think a good way to assess that is to ask how we view others in relationship to the kingdom of God. So is there someone in your life, someone who, if you're honest, you feel is beyond the reach of God's kingdom? Someone who you just cannot imagine being drawn into it. Now, maybe you would never actually say that about them, but if you're honest, it is how you feel about them. It could be someone close to you. Maybe a relative who's hostile to the faith or a family member who you can just feel tuning you out whenever you mention Jesus. 
Maybe it's a friend who you love deeply, but who has no interest in the things of God and whose lifestyle is so different from Christ's commands that you, it's hard for you even to imagine what they would be like if they began living in a Christian way. Maybe it's a coworker who finds your faith silly, if not offensive. Or maybe it's even you yourself. For whatever reason, you cannot imagine yourself experiencing the favor of God, knowing that he loves you living as one of his people. I suspect we all have someone in our lives that we have trouble imagining as a Christian, as one of God's people. And then beyond that, in addition, there may be whole groups that we have trouble imagining coming into the kingdom. Who that is might be different for each one of us. Maybe for you, it's a political group. Maybe it's a resident from another specific country or culture, a a country or culture that as far as you can see seems so far as a whole from the kingdom of God. Maybe it's a member of an international political group, Hamas, modern Israel, the Islamic State in Iraq. What group is it for you that you simply cannot imagine a member of it, let alone a whole group from it, embracing Christ? So who is it that you know personally, that you know individually? Who is it in your life? And then second, who is it that you know more from a distance? What group of people is it that fits in that category? If we think of certain people, whether ourselves or another individual or a whole group as being beyond the reach of the kingdom of God, we may think that we're making a statement about the people themselves. But what we learn from the Pharisees and the Gospels is that we're really making a statement about the kingdom of God. We're really describing the kingdom of God in a specific way. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me explain. I am uh, thankful to my parents for uh, many things, for a number of things. And one of those things in particular is that I'm thankful that my father made sure to introduce me to a number of classic movies and television shows as I was growing up. And one of the things he introduced me to was the original series of The Twilight Zone from the 1960s. I want to tell you about one one episode in, in, in particular called I Shot an Arrow into the Air. It came out in 1960. That was before the first manned space flight. And it's about the first manned space flight. So it's sort of funny looking back at it at what uh, the expectations were in the culture at that time. Uh, in the episode, none of the astronauts wear spacesuits, but they're all heavily armed with rifles and pistols. I'm not sure who they were expecting to fight out there, but they were ready if it came up. So as you watch it, you need to suspend your disbelief a little bit normal, a little bit more than normal um, when you're watching shows like that. But it's still a great show and a great episode. In this particular episode, a crew of eight astronauts goes up in a rocket for the first manned spaceflight, and they take off, but not long after the launch, the mission control loses the ship. They don't know where it went. It's missing. At that point, the show leaves mission control and goes to see the astronauts themselves. Their spaceship has crashed somewhere. Four of them are dead. One is badly injured and near death, and three are alive and relatively well. They all blacked out during the flight and did not revive until after the crash landing. They look around the barren terrain where they find themselves, and they determine that they must be on an uncharted asteroid. They are happy to find that there is a breathable atmosphere there. Like I said, it was the 1960s. You have to suspend your disbelief a little more. But all they can see from where they stand are rocks and hills, rocks and hills. Most of their supplies have been destroyed in the crash, and the only... uh, thing of water they have left is five gallons. 
Their leader quickly reminds the other astronauts that they were on the first and only working spaceship in existence, so any rescue mission would take years to reach them as those on Earth would need to actually build another spacecraft from scratch. Their only hope is to find food and water on the asteroid to survive long enough to be rescued. And in order to find food or water, they need to live long enough to explore the asteroid to see if there's anything there to be found. But they only have these five gallons of water, which they soon begin to argue over. Corey, one of the astronauts, doesn't want to give any water to the astronaut who's dying. He thinks it a waste. An argument ensues, and he and their leader start to fight. But before anyone wins that fight, the badly injured man dies on his own. And now just three men remain with five gallons of water. They decide to explore. The leader stays with the remaining supplies while Corey and the other remaining astronaut go out to see what they can find. That night, Corey comes back alone, and he's carrying with him the other astronaut's canteen of water. He tells his leader that he and the other astronaut split up, but that later Corey found him dead. He says that the man must have slipped and hit his head or something. So Corey explains he took his canteen since the other man wouldn't be needing it anymore. The leader is suspicious. He pulls out his gun and holds Corey at gunpoint and demands that Corey show him the other astronaut's body. So they go out together, and it takes some time, but they eventually find him, and he's not dead, actually. But he is hurt. He's injured badly on his head. He's just barely alive, and he points to a ridge far away and tries to talk, but he can't. So he starts to try to draw something in the sand, but before he can make it clear, he dies. Looking over the astronaut's injuries, the leader realizes that he did not fall. He was attacked. He was attacked by Corey. But before he can do anything, Corey seizes the gun and points it at the leader. Corey explains to him about the water supply. He says, two men can live maybe five days. One can live ten. You'll forgive me. And then he pulls the trigger. Gathering all the remaining water for himself, Corey takes off on foot toward the ridge that the other astronaut have been pointing out to see what he can find. He walks and he walks and he walks. And finally he reaches that ridge. He gets to the top and he looks at what is beyond. And the first thing he sees are telephone lines and then a road and then a sign for Reno in 97 miles. <laughs> then a sign for a motel that's much closer. He realizes that it was the telephone lines that the other astronaut had been trying to draw. Their spaceship had never left Earth. It had taken off and then fallen back into the desert after he, they had blacked out. They had fallen into a barren desert, which looked to them like they imagined an asteroid would. And Corey falls to the ground as he realizes this and weeps. In this story, Corey had organized all of his actions since the crash, his view of the world, his relationship to those around him, based on the belief that water was extremely scarce and that help was thousands of miles away. Yet just over the ridge at a nearby motel, a virtually endless supply of water was there for them. An endless supply of water was within their reach, but Corey lived his life and treated others as if only five gallons existed. This is how the Pharisees treated the kingdom of God in the Gospels. The Pharisees, who were this significant group of religious leaders in Israel during Jesus' ministry, treated the kingdom of God like it was a limited resource. 
This matters because over and over again in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been having repeated run-ins with the Pharisees leading up to this story. He was regularly contrasting himself with them. But for the Pharisees, it began with those who were far off, pagans and Canaanites living around Israel. They were not members of Israel, and in the Pharisees' eyes, they were so far gone that they could have no real hope of entering God's kingdom. They were like the dying astronaut that Corey would not share water with. Why even bother, they might have asked. Next for the Pharisees were known sinners within God's people, sinners who had obviously and publicly broken God's commandments, sinners who had a reputation as such in the Jewish community. The Pharisees criticized Jesus for even associating with such people, with known sinners. Again, like non-essential personnel that Corey didn't want using up water, such people were determined by the Pharisees to be beyond hope, not worth sparing a limited resource for. And finally, on top of excluding those outside of Israel and known sinners within Israel, the Pharisees made new laws to exclude even more people. The running that Jesus has with them right before this passage in Matthew 15 is over that very issue. The Pharisees criticized Jesus' disciples for not doing a ceremonial washing before eating a meal, a ceremony that's not commanded in the word of God. And because his disciples did not do this ceremony, the Pharisees imply that Jesus must not be of the kingdom of God. With this move, the Pharisees go yet another step further in trying to exclude others from God's kingdom. Now, a Pharisee would never say that they were limiting the power of God's kingdom, but they were. They were treating it like a scarce resource. They were treating it like there was not enough to go around and like they needed to exclude others from it in order to increase or protect their own share. Now, I suspect that sometimes you and I are not that different from the Pharisees in this matter. Now, what do I mean? We are tempted with the same thing. We see some people as simply being beyond the kingdom of God. Think again of that person, yourself or a person close to you, that you cannot imagine entering the kingdom of God. Think again of that group that seems to you beyond the kingdoms of God's reach in your mind. Who was it? What are we doing when we imagine that anyone is beyond the reach of the kingdom of God, even if we imagine it involuntarily? We are, assuming that even the, we are assuming that the kingdom of God is limited. We are assuming that it cannot stretch far enough to sustain them. We may never make such a claim theologically out loud, but we act like that's the case. We act like the kingdom of God is a meager canteen. And what about excluding others? What are your rules or our rules that go beyond God's word, rules that we use to exclude others or to question their faith? Is it their theology, their style of worship, how they educate their children? Now, we are hopefully not as extreme as the Pharisees were, but I suspect that we all have our own hand-washing ceremonies that we tend towards, our extra rules. So what are yours? When we exclude others based on our own rules or when we act as if certain non-Christians are beyond the reach of God's kingdom, we're acting as if the kingdom of God is a limited resource. We're acting like it is a meager canteen of water. The Bible shows us that when we do that, we're acting like Corey in the twilight zone. We're grossly misunderstanding the resources that are available to us. To get this, to really see this, we need to better understand how the story of Matthew 15 fits into the overall context of Jesus' ministry as a whole and really how it fits within all of biblical history. 
The trajectory for the kingdom of God is set way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12. And in that chapter, in verses 1 through 4, it says this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This passage summarizes the arc of the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see Israel increasing in size and relating to God. We get moments where we catch a glimpse of blessing going out to others outside of Israel, to other families of the earth. But often those are just glimpses. The real turning point when the blessings go out beyond Israel comes in Jesus Christ and in the ministry of his apostles after his death and resurrection. It's interesting to look at this in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 12, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his apostles and he specifically tells them this. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then in Matthew chapter 28, just 18 chapters later, at the end of his earthly ministry, after his death and resurrection, Jesus again calls his disciples together and says this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In the three years of Jesus' ministry, we have this turn from a focus almost exclusively on Israel to a new mission to all families of the earth after Christ's death and resurrection. And our text is right in the middle of that, right in Matthew 15. In our text, Jesus is not being a jerk. In our text, we have a lot of tension, but that tension is from the turning point that we're on in redemptive history. The old is about to go. The new is about to come. The kingdom of God is about to burst out from the Jews and into all of the world, but we're not quite there yet. I don't know if, uh, how many of you have been there or seen it yourself, but even if you haven't, you're probably aware that the Colorado River is a, a big river. Uh, it's about 1,400 miles long. It discharges an average of 22,000 cubic feet of water a second, which is more than I can really imagine. And it's also controlled by an extensive system of dams. It's one of the most heavily managed rivers in the world. There are 15 dams on the main stem of the river and many more on its tributaries. And because of the dams, the system can hold four times the river's annual flow. But now imagine a situation with me for a minute of what would happen if an amazing outpouring of water came to the top of the river, a miraculous outpouring, something that's not really going to happen. But imagine it with me, if that was poured out, starting at the highest point at the head of the river. Imagine a massive flood that raises the water level at the first dam higher and higher. And soon the waves start spraying over the top of the dam. And the flood valves are not enough, and the pressure increases, and soon cracks appear in the dam. And water starts to spray from it. And then a few more cracks appear. And finally, the dam bursts and the water gushes down the canyon, filling in all the space it can down to the next dam in the river. And at the next dam, this starts to build up again. And it gets high and it starts to splash over the top and cracks appear in the dam and water starts spraying until the second dam bursts and the water gushes down to the next. And the process continues. That is an image of what the kingdom of God is like in the Bible. Is that how we think of it? I don't think it's how most of us do think of it most of the time, but that is the story that we get in the Bible. 
In Genesis, God approaches a childless old man and his infertile wife and tells them that their descendants will be a great nation that will bless every family on the planet. What a ridiculous statement. How delusional must they have sounded when they talked about it together? They were old, childless, and infertile, and their goal was to have a family line so massive that it impacted the entire world. Talk about a goal with a strong, insurmountable-looking dam in its path. But 500 years later, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the great nation that descended from Abraham is set before us. They are a great multitude. The dam lies in ruins, and the kingdom moves on. But a new dam is quickly reached. In Exodus, God's people are enslaved by the most powerful nation in the world at that time, by Egypt, a true superpower. And it seems at first like, of course, this dam will hold back the kingdom of God. But then Egypt is brought to its knees. Israel is let out, and within another 500 years, in the book of Kings, we find this population descended from slave labor as a respected nation run by King Solomon. And non-Israelites from all around are coming to see life in Israel and to learn from Solomon's wisdom. And these non-Israelite families are blessed. And so another dam lies in ruins, and the kingdom moves on. Yet Israel still remains separated from much of the world. This is another barrier, another dam. But soon, after another 500 years, exile comes. And what is, in one sense, discipline for Israel, is also, in another sense, the spreading of God's kingdom. As many pagans from peasants to great kings, hear of Israel's God and are blessed. And so another dam lies in ruins, and the kingdom moves on. And when the New Testament begins another 500 years later, a divide still exists between Jews and Gentiles. And many Jewish leaders, the Pharisees in particular, want not only to keep it that way, but to add to the already existing divide. They want to not only maintain the dam between Jew and Gentile, but to build it higher. And that is where our text from Matthew 15 picks up. In the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a dam is about to burst. The kingdom of God will burst beyond the nation of Israel in a way it had never done before. In Matthew 15, it had not burst yet, but it was about to. That tension is what leads to the crack in the dam that makes this story what it is. So let's look at the text. The text, as I've said, is full of tension. The kingdom is not yet fully expanded to the Gentiles, but here a Gentile woman approaches Jesus in what seems to be genuine faith. Jesus rightly points out that in this moment, his first mission is to the Jews, to God's people of old. But the woman gets his attention with a simple plea, what may be one of the simplest but best prayers that there are. Lord, help me, she says. And Jesus stops, and now he responds. Now, a few things about his response. Jesus uses a parable here, and it's important to realize that it's a parable. He's not calling this woman a dog or calling Gentiles dogs, but he's using a metaphor to explain the different places they still hold in this moment in redemptive history. Those positions will change soon, but they haven't yet. The dam remains in place. Also, it's important for us to know that it's not clear that the word dog as it's used here would necessarily have the same insulting nature that we think of it if we were to refer to someone as a dog. At least one commentator suggests translating it pups, as in it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the pups. So Jesus explains his mission to this woman by using a parable. And then the Canaanite woman shows her faith, and note carefully how she does it. 
She does not deny that Jesus' primary mission in that moment is to the Jews. She does not claim to be worthy of a higher place at the table. Instead, she expresses her confidence in the abundance of the kingdom of God. Jesus uses the metaphor of bread for the blessings of God's kingdom, and the woman picks up on that. It is true that the blessing is coming to the Jews first, but she knows it will not stop there. She knows it will not be a meager meal. She knows that there will be food to spare and that crumbs will overflow beyond the children to those who are below. She confesses her faith in an abundant and overflowing kingdom, and she's rewarded. Her faith is recognized, and Jesus says, great is your faith, a strong compliment that he gives almost no one else in the Gospels. And to the surprise of any first century Jew, this Canaanite woman's faith becomes an example. While the Jewish leaders are disputing with Jesus and treating the kingdom as meager, this Gentile woman shows great faith in God's abundant kingdom and confesses Jesus as Lord. In this Canaanite woman's confession of faith, we see a crack in the dam that separates Jews and Gentiles. In Jesus' loving and healing response, we see the grace of the kingdom of God begin to spray through that crack in the dam. This woman is some of the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. That is where she fits into the larger context. She is a crack in the dam, the dam that will later burst to pieces at the resurrection of Jesus. And soon after, Gentiles will begin to stream into the kingdom. But even after that, the powerful flood of the kingdom would not end there. In the aftermath of the New Testament period, we have a relatively small group of Christian believers who have little power in society and who are repeatedly persecuted. As the most powerful men in the world at this time, emperors of the Roman Empire tried to stamp out the church. I wonder if you sat down with a first century Christian facing imperial persecution and told them that in just a few hundred years, the church would not only still exist, it would not only have grown, but that Caesar himself would confess that Jesus is Lord and that he is not. Do you think they would have believed you? But that is what happened. Another dam burst open and lies in ruins, and the kingdom moves on. The Roman Empire is conquered by Christ. And that pattern continues over and over again up to today. We often miss this because we live in a part of the world where the church is temporarily contracting. But that is not the worldwide picture, and even in our location in the West, that contraction that we face will not last forever. In the wider world, the kingdom of God continues to burst through new dams, still expanding more and more. Church historian Mark Knoll describes this historic reality in the beginning of his book, The New Shape of World Christianity. After documenting the incredible growth of the church in Africa and Asia, Knoll hits us with two surprising facts. This is what he says. First, he tells us that more than half of all Christian adherents in the whole of the history of the church have been alive in the last 100 years. And second, he explains that close to half of Christian believers who have ever lived are alive right now. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Close to half of Christian believers who have ever lived are alive right now. That means that if Jesus came back right now and raised all of the dead and gathered all of his people to himself, the largest period of history represented, the period of history that would boast the most Christians, would not be from the Christian Roman Empire. It would not be from medieval Europe. It would not be from the age of the Reformation or of the Puritans. 
it would not be from the age of the large revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries. It would be from right now, today, our moment in church history. We right now have more Christians than any other age before us has. And that is not only just when it comes to the raw numbers, but looking even at the percentage of Christians over world population over time gives a similar picture. The Bible, world history, our story from Matthew 15 all show the power of the kingdom of God. It is a flood that bursts through dam after dam. So what do we do with this? How does this relate to us? Let me say just two things about that. First, I'll ask you again to think of that person who you feel in your heart will never come to know God's favor in Christ, whether a friend or an enemy, a family member, or even yourself. Is that feeling right? Can't the kingdom that raised Israel from an old infertile couple, the kingdom that defeated Egypt, that conquered the Roman Empire, that conquered ancient Europe, and that is now conquering Africa and Asia, can't that same kingdom also conquer the heart of the person that you're thinking of? Do not be distressed, but bring that person to God in prayer, knowing that God can sweep them up into the flood of his kingdom. So that is the first thing that we take from this. The second is to ask, how do you think of yourself when you're in the non-Christian world? How do you feel when you're there? Do you think of yourself as if you're out there in the wilderness carrying a small half-gallon canteen of the kingdom of God with you? Or do you think of yourself as part of a great flood pressing against a dam, pressing it to eventually burst? Because the kingdom of God will advance again. It is not yet done. The next dam may not burst today or tomorrow or even in this century, but it will burst. We see hints of it now, little cracks in the wall. Cracks not unlike the story of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. We anticipate the bursting of the dam ahead and the advance of the kingdom afterwards. And we look forward to the day when, as the prophet Isaiah said, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Amen.